Let's go to the Lord in prayer uh, as we come into our time of study in the Word. Father, I pray that in this time that uh, we would be changed, that that song would capture our hearts and would be what we came here to do, which is to offer ourselves to you, to be changed, to be transformed, Lord. We know that to come really into your presence is to see what we need to see. It is to lay down the things that uh, don't need to be in our lives. Lord, I pray that you do a transforming work in these days, even as I know that you're doing in my own life and the lives of others. So let this time, in your word, by your spirit that you would move and be a time of change, an authentic encounter with the living God, with the spirit of God, with the truth of God. Use the sword of your spirit, the word of God today, to help us, to build us up. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. We're on a winding journey. <laughs> I don't uh, know exactly where we're going with it all, but uh, this journey began in the book of Ezra some weeks ago, maybe even months ago. I've lost track with the story of the Jews returning from the exile to Babylon, uh, back to re-inhabit the kingdom of God, if you will, that was the kingdom of Israel, to rebuild a temple, to restore the worship of God, of Yahweh the great I am. They began as they got back there at the center of where the temple had once been, back to the place where the foundations of the altar were still visible, and they replaced that altar. They restored it. They put it back on its foundation, the place where they would come and bow the knee and meet with the living God to offer a sacrifice which would represent a giving of themselves to God to encounter the presence of God. At the end of the book of Ezra, spoiler alert here, they, as Ezra came and they were worshiping and giving themselves to God, they found out that many of the Jews of the land had married foreign wives, Assyrian and others, and that those marriages brought in detestable practices you can read in the Old Testament, we did this Wednesday night, in fact, to see many of the detestable things like child sacrifice that were part of the religion of the Canaanites and Amorites and all of these people. And so the Jews had married into that and brought that into their lives. And ultimately, these Jewish people were told to separate from those mixed marriages. Now, that's a can of worms we don't want to open up, but just to say it was to return to pure faith. There were a group of those people, apparently who refused to separate religiously and in their marriages. These were the Samaritans, we believe. And their refusal to separate, both religiously and otherwise, put them at odds with the Jews. And so what they did was they built their own temple. As Ezra and Nehemiah and all the people were rebuilding the temple of God there in Jerusalem, there was a group of people that said, no, we're not going to do that. And so they built their own temple. In 128 B.C., a Jewish king named John Hyrcanus came after that temple in uh, um, Samaria had been built. He came and wiped it out. 
So there was already friction. There was already factions. There was already a separation of the Samaritans from the Jews. But this really sealed the deal on the hatred between the Samaritans and the Jews when Hyrcanus destroyed that temple. As we press ahead in our study and we're trying to find out and rediscover what is the biblical notion of true worship for us today, we turn to John chapter 4 when Jesus comes into Samaria. And there at a well that was dug by Jacob, that is Israel, who was given then to his son Joseph, Jesus comes to that well and he encounters there in Samaria at that well a Samaritan woman. And he says to that woman a profound and I think a statement that's worthy of our consideration for today. Jesus says, this is how we must worship. Let me give you the key verses. It's uh, John 4, verses 23 and 4, and then we're going to circle back and try to figure out what they mean. John 4, 23 and 4, Jesus says to that woman at the well, but an hour is coming and, is, and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And you know, in our day, it is really a bold statement. If I, and in fact, that's why I had John put it on the social media as the title of this sermon, How We Must Worship. That cuts against the grain for us a little bit because we think, well, there's lots of ways to worship, right? There's all different kinds of styles of worship. And I think we need to do away with some of that thinking and just hear what Jesus says to this woman and then trying to figure, try to figure out what it is. He says, an hour is coming. Actually, it's now here. Jesus institutes a time, and that time is still today, when he says, true worshipers worship the Father, must worship in spirit and in truth. How we must worship. It must be in spirit and in truth. That's what we've got to figure out what it means. Worship. There's several uh, words used, uh, translated worship. The one used here in John chapter 4, the proskuneo word, which basically means to, to bow down before. Now there's another one that's used, two other ones. One of them is often translated to serve. But this one, to bow before God, to come before and submit ourselves to God, must be done in spirit and in truth. And so I've been noodling on this for three weeks. That's why you're probably getting another long sermon. Sorry to my wife. She kind of warned me about that today. She kind of cringed when I said I had three pages of notes. But I've been noodling around. What does it mean? Because my job is to come and to bring the word of God and then try to bring some light to it. What does it mean then? To worship in spirit and in truth. Well, we've got to figure that out. Some people would say, you know, there's different interpretive approaches. One is to say, okay, we've got two things here, two distinct things, spirit and truth. We need both of those, spirit and truth. Well, what are we talking about? Spirit. You can, if you've got your Bible open, how many of you uh, there in those verses, spirit is capitalized? Anybody? So there's an interpretive approach that says, he's talking about here the Holy Spirit, capital S, an external force that comes, 
An external empowerment, the Holy Spirit. So we must worship, they would say, in the Holy Spirit. Now, the other thing is to say, no, 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 no. He's talking about kind of like what we've been talking about in these weeks, that at the very center of our lives, of our being, the core part is our lowercase s, spirit. The immaterial part, but the part that communes with God. And so, they're going, there's spirit and truth. First, we've got to figure out, is he talking about the Holy Spirit or our spirit? And I would say it's not an either or, it's a both and. He's talking about our spirit, lowercase s, must encounter, capital S, the Holy Spirit. And then there is the truth, aletheia. Think about that. The spirit, so our spirit with the spirit of God and truth. What is truth? Pilate asked the question to Jesus, what is the truth? Well, it's what is historically accurate. It is what is real. What is? Another interpretive way to take truth here, and some of your Bible translations may say this, it's a genuineness. Some people follow that train. That, well, we're just talking about being authentic and real, not being hypocrites. I think that could be a valid thing. And then, good grief, if that's not enough, if those aren't enough options to choose from, there are some people that say, no, it's not two things, it's one thing. Just like last week, John chapter 3, water and the Spirit, be born of the water and the Spirit, is to say the Spirit of truth. So we're just talking about the Holy Spirit. So when you're confused, what do you do? You do what I did. I went to a buddy of mine who's a good Christian guy. He studies the Bible. And I, I made an excuse to go see him, and I said, hey, what do you think it means to worship in spirit and truth? What's John chapter 4 talking about? He said, well, I think it's having the best of both worlds, the Pentecostals and the Baptists in one worship service. You have to appreciate this guy's heritage and where he comes from. He says, you know, the Pentecostals have got the spirit. It's lively and it's exciting and all of that. And, and, but sometimes they don't major too much on the truth that is the Bible. Whereas the Baptists, you know, Baptists are a little boring is what he would say. And, you know, but, but, but do major on the truth. And so that was my buddy. It's uh, you need to be Bapticostal. That's basically, and that's what he would say he is. You know, but really the best thing you could do when you're trying to figure out what the Bible says and means you should look at words. You should talk to people, but ultimately you should go to the passage. Maybe, maybe look at the bigger passage and say, what, what is in this context? What would give me some light about understanding this? Because we've got to understand, if this is the way we must worship, we've got to understand what it is to worship in spirit and in truth. And so we're going to walk through this passage in three sections. And I want to show you some of the major things. And really, I told you last week that it goes with John chapter 3. You have to read them really together to get the fullness of it. And ultimately, it would be good if you read the whole uh, gospel of John because many of these themes are repeated and it continually grows like a snowball going downhill. It, it just grows and expands. But the first thing I want to show you is we're trying to ferret out what it means to worship in spirit and in truth. Is there in verses 7 through 15 where we see personal needs and our primary needs. So what, before we read that, in the verses ahead of that, what it says is that Jesus and his disciples had been baptizing people, and some people weren't happy about that. And so to 
really to, to flee from the anger and all of the things going on, they just pick up and they're moving. They're going up to the northern part of the country, to Galilee, but they've got to go through Samaria. And they're coming to a well because they're thirsty and they're hungry. The disciples go to get food, leave Jesus there, and he's really thirsty. Here's that deep well. He doesn't have anything to draw water with. But it also says that he's tired. He's worn out. Jesus is worn out. All right. Now let's read where it picks up in verse 7. It says, There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink since I'm a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. And she said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? You are not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle? And Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water. So I will not be thirsty, nor come all the way here to draw. Personal needs and our primary need. Human needs of all kind evident in this passage. We need food. When we're weary and tired, we need rest and restoration for our bodies. Jesus and his disciples were seeking protection from those who wanted to hurt them. We need protection. We as humans want security. And there are things that God has built into our body and our systems to help us protect ourselves. We need community. We need people to walk the journey with us. Here is a woman who we're going to find out some things as Jesus prized into her life. We learn about her relationships. We need relationships. We long for intimacy. Sexual desire is part of this story, companionship. Many needs that we seek to fill outside of ourselves. Okay. And Jesus there at the well, it's appropriate, he focuses in on water. Cattle need water, people need water, the land needs water. We know that we need water because we thirst. So he picks up on our need for water. And he says to that woman, give me a drink. But he says to her, but if you only knew who it was asking you for a drink and what the gift is that he offers, you would be asking him for living water. A kind of water that comes, that just continually bubbles up from within and satisfies the thirsty soul. Never runs dry. You never thirst again if you had this gift What is that living water? What is this gift? Look at what he says in verse 10. Woman, if you only knew the gift of God that I could give you 
if you only knew the gift? What, what is this gift? What is this living water that Jesus is able to impart to a person? What is it? Well, it's the Spirit of God coming to live within us, communing with our heart and spirit. How do I know that? Well, this is connected back to John chapter 3. And this idea of being born again of the water and the spirit. Jesus uses the word gift that is also used multiple times in the book of Acts for the gift, the coming of the Holy Spirit that Jesus pours out. To worship in spirit is to have living water. It is to have an encounter with the living God through Jesus where the Holy Spirit comes in and gives us a life. He gives us what we need in order to have eternal life. It's the gift of God himself through the Holy Spirit residing in us. It's exactly what Jesus explained to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He says, Nicodemus, above religion and ritual and all of that, what you need is, what you must do is be born again of the water and the Spirit. To come to the Lord for cleansing and forgiveness and to receive the gift of God in your life. Let him quicken or awaken or give you life of the Spirit that will give you eternal life. So Jesus, though, he kind of cloaks all of that, but we know it, we see, we understand. He says, living water, that's what I'm offering you. The woman doesn't understand that this is a deep, immaterial, spiritual thing he's talking about at this point. So she says, sign me up. Mr. Culligan man, give me that water that will continually come to me. I want that because I'm sick of coming to this well and carrying water. So she thinks it's still some kind of physical H2O, but that's not what he's talking about. But her interest is piqued. But here's what we see first of all in this passage. There are human needs, personal needs that can only be fulfilled outside of ourselves. And Jesus is primarily interested, first of all, in doing a spiritual work, bringing life to our spirit. And so if we would worship God, if we would come to him, first and foremost, again, what we saw last week is we must come to Jesus and be born again and have the spirit of God come and reside in us as we trust in Jesus by faith. I think that's what he's talking about, to worship in spirit, is to have that initial encounter because anything else is not worship. First and foremost, in the deepest part of our life, to recognize the need that we are dead in our sins and we can't do anything about it. No religious ritual, nothing can change the fact that we are dead in our sins except Jesus and God's forgiveness and receiving eternal life. And so we have to have that initial experience. But then we also need to see that the initial experience is not all there is to what Jesus wants to do. We have to come to grips with something, and this is going to offend some of you probably today, but it's evident, I think, in this passage in verses 16 through 18, and that is that we are personally ruined, and we need a complete renovation. We are personally ruined, and we need a complete renovation, verses 16 through 18. And he said to her, after she asked for that water, he said to her, go and call your husband and come here. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you've 
correctly said, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. Hey, call your husband and we'll talk more about this living water. Well, I don't really have a husband. No, no, you've had five. And now you're with a man that's actually not your husband. You're living with him, though, as if you were. Jesus gets personal. He's prying. Can you imagine meeting someone and five minutes into the conversation, they're digging into your personal life in this way? I'll, I'll tell you honestly, as I'm reading it, I go, that seems a little rude, a little intrusive, and a little bit mean, doesn't it? Doesn't this sound mean to you? Well, Jesus, can't we keep it up here on this superficial level? I liked it better when you were talking about water. And I thought about it the condition of this woman's life. What had gone on before? You know, we're not privy to a lot of the details and so we can only speculate. But we're thinking about a woman who has had five husbands. How does that happen? Well, you can imagine maybe death. I doubt death took five. You could imagine infidelities. You could imagine, you know, adultery on either side. You could imagine maybe someone who expects too much is impossible to satisfy. Maybe you can imagine a person who is terribly mean, violent even, maybe. You can imagine all kinds of things that might have led to this point. And regardless of what brought her to the point, it seems that she's given up on the idea of marriage. But she's living with a guy which goes against God's plan. And I think about a life that has gone terribly wrong. Now again, it would be easy to assume too much because we don't know this woman. But I can tell you, I had a grandpa that married four times and it broke him. It broke him financially and emotionally, mentally, socially. And I was a kid watching all of that happen, and I mean, I just thought my grandpa was a cool guy. He's the guy that gave us tobacco to chew when we were six years old, you know, and drove us around on his motorcycle without helmets. I just thought, you know, it, it just doesn't come any better than that. And, uh, you know, and so I watched all of this, and, and after my grandpa passed away, you know, I was just talking. It's interesting to ask questions. And I thought about a guy that always seemed happy when I was around him, but I tell you, I know it wasn't the truth because of where he ended up in his life in his later years. So you just said, how did he get to that point? And again, it would be those kinds of things that I just listed off to you. But then you start asking around, you say, you know, what was, what was Grandpa's childhood like? Well, he was raised in an abusive home with a mother who was very kind, but a father that was violent and beat him. And he had to leave and run and flee for protection. He didn't know how to relate very well to people. Except at a superficial level. He kept people at arm's distance. I was reading about children <clears throat> raised in abusive homes. And here's what it says. 
in the little paragraph I read. Children with a kind of trauma, like abusive parents, addicted parents, all kinds of things, they tend to grow up with distorted images of themselves and relationships. And their self-perception is that they are worthless and unlovable. Think about that. Instead of looking at a person and saying, look at everything that you've done wrong, through some external factor like the number of marriages, to think about the deep brokenness and the things that were outside of their control, ultimately. But the fact is we live our lives and things happen to us. And so we build either consciously, subconsciously, all sorts of ways to deal with those things and to try to make it in the world. It's interesting that the Samaritan woman comes to the well at noon. That's not the time that you go and get water, by the way, in the heat of the day. Unless you're going to get water when no one else would be there. Because you don't want to have to face your peers. You don't want to have to hear the snickers or see the noses go in the air that are looking down on you. So she comes to the well probably hoping to not have to deal with anybody. And there is this man named Jesus who digs into her life in the first few minutes of the conversation. I don't think it's a stretch to see this woman as a person whose life is in shambles. The personal ruin, not knowing how to deal with everything that has come at you, but just trying to function and get along the best that you can. And the reality is that that's every one of us, folks. It doesn't matter if you've only been married once, never been married. I think the, the Bible's assessment of our lives is that every one of us, when we do what Romans 1 says, we kick God out of our lives and we worship the creation and created things instead of God, it disfigures and disforms, it messes up our lives. One of the great books that has helped me, I tell you, and it's, uh, it's one of these I can only read a page or two at a time and then I have to sit there and chew on it, is a book called Renovation of the Heart by Dallas Willard. And I would commend that book to you. So we're thinking about encountering and having a, a real encounter of worship. Here's what Dallas Willard says in his book, Renovation of the Heart. He says, we must see the soul, the person, in its ruined condition, with its malformed and dysfunctional mind, feelings, body, and social relationships before we can understand that it must be delivered and reformed and how that can be done. In other words, we need a true assessment of our problem and what we need from God before we can receive it. And that is that our lives have been formed, malformed, misformed, because we're misinformed. Because God is not at the center. And we build our lives and our actions and our thoughts and our feelings and our everything on lies and deceptions. And so Willard says, you know, we got to come to see that apart from Christ, our soul is ruined. It's messed up. It doesn't just need a superficial fix. It needs a total reconfiguration. All right? We exchange the truth of God for a lie. And Jesus is saying here we must worship in spirit and in truth. Denial and deception. 
denial and deception. Here's a woman that says, hey, I don't, I don't have a husband. She doesn't want to come clean with the reality. Tries to polish it up for this man. We deny the brokenness in our lives. We reject God. We put ourselves on his throne. And all hell breaks loose. Denial and deception is when we accept what is not so and we reject what truly is so. I'll tell you what truly is so is God is good. God is our creator and he loves us. And he wants to restore us to the place that he created us to inhabit. But we're far away and we're ruined. And Jesus is not content to let this woman deny the truth. Because the fact is, when we close off rooms of our lives to God, we remain broken. And the kind of transformation he wants to give us is a complete inside-out transformation. And it requires us to face the truth. The truth about ourselves, the truth about the broken places, the truth about where we have messed up, the truth about what we're doing with what people did to us. We must deal in truth and quit denying it. And the wrong beliefs that we have built our life around, that we can make ourselves happy by seeking our own pleasure in whatever way that manifests itself, we have to deal with that and understand that actually chasing some created thing only leads to misery, not lasting pleasure. We are never satisfied when we put something in the place that God is supposed to be, the center of our lives. It feels, sin feels good for a season. There is a short satisfaction, and then we expect more and more from that thing, and ultimately we receive less and less. And we're left thirsty. We're left thirsty. And Jesus says, I'm offering you living water if you'll come to me. Coming to God in worship is about receiving a complete transformation from the inside out. But it requires an honesty and a willingness to let our brokenness be exposed. But I would also say to you, it's not a one-time endeavor. Because we have spent our lives being misformed, misinformed, malformed, we have built a life that requires the pulling away of layers and allowing God to do a sometimes slow and painful restoration. Last thing here, we see that worship in spirit and truth is about restoring, rebuilding our lives from the inside out, what has been ruined. Verses 19, 19 through 26. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you people say in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. 
And the woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I am. I, I, I who speak to you am he. At this point, his disciples came and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, why do you seek? Or what do you seek? Or why do you speak with her? Worship in spirit and truth is about having an initial encounter with the living God through Jesus, but it's about continually coming before the Lord and allowing His truth to transform us. The woman shifts the conversation all of a sudden from her broken marriages to worship. And some people say, well, it's kind of a red herring. She's sort of, hey, hey, Jesus, let's get off my life and let's talk about religion. Are we supposed to worship like the Samaritans say on that mountain or in Jerusalem like the Jews say? And he says, you know, it's not about geography. It's not about ritual. You people are worshiping in ignorance. The Jews have worshiped with some level of truth and knowledge. But an hour has now come when it's not about a temple or a place. Instead, you are the temple. And it's about worshiping in spirit and in truth. In 2009, I built a a little uh, shed off the side of my barn. It was to be a greenhouse. Built it out of PVC and lots of wood. Usually if you build out of plastics, things don't last very long. And a big snowstorm came and collapsed some of it, ripped my plastic, and I said, I'm out of the greenhouse business. But it was really cheap, and I had this structure, and so we took off the plastic, and I put bird netting over it, and over the different years, it it was a quail flight pen, and it was a chicken coop. It lasted for about... uh, 10 years as a bird coop. In this last storm, ice storm and snow, the thing basically collapsed on one end. And I'll tell you, I had been dreading dealing with this eyesore. And that's what it was. It was an eyesore. I'd been dreading dealing with this. And finally my son, he came and says, like, we got to clean this mess up. I said, I know. It's ruined. But you know, the reality was, is the whole time I was building it and rebuilding it, I knew I wasn't, wasn't building something that could last. It couldn't be sustained because it was built out of plastic. But I'll tell you, it's, it was literally painful tearing this thing down. Nails, and when no one was looking, I fell. I don't think anybody saw that. A board sprung up, nearly hit me in the face. Some of it was kind of fun, you know, saws everywhere and skid steers slinging stuff, and that was kind of cool. You know, it's, it's nice when the power equipment come, but, comes, but there was some of it that was very intricate work. Required unbolting of boards and taking wrenches, and it was just slow and methodical. But the point is that the wreckage and the ruin, stuff that could never last, had to be dismantled and taken away. In order when lumber prices go to come down, for there to be a new and lasting roof and shed put on, something that could withstand the storms that come. Folks, that is a picture of what God wants to do, what true worship is about. It's about coming and submitting our lives to God and saying, I'm ruined. I'm ruined in a lot of ways. Really, the fact is I'm ruined, Lord, in every way. All my life has served some purposes. And there have been some good things. But I know that I'm broken. Really, in every part. 
in some way. Lord, would you tear down this mess and rebuild something better, something that can last for eternity, something that is in line with the kingdom of God, something that is stable and sound and beautiful. Would you do that? I'll do that. That's what he wants to do. And he does it through truth. Ultimately, I would say to you that in some ways we could see our minds as the altar where we encounter God. Now, first of all, there is the encounter of the Holy Spirit in our heart or our soul, deep inside. But worship, continual worship, is coming again and again to the altar of truth with our minds and saying, Lord, replace lies and deceit and evil things with truth and good things. Dallas Willard again says, as we first turned away from God in our thoughts, so it is in our thoughts that the first movements towards the renovation of the heart occur. Thoughts are the place where we can and must begin to change. There the light of God first begins to move upon us through the word of Christ, and there the divine spirit begins to direct our will and realign us with God and his way. Our mind is what directs our will, which ultimately directs our action. Our mind encompasses not just our ability to reason, but also our emotions, our imaginations, our dispositions, our affections, our loves, what we desire. All of those things are encompassed in the idea of the mind. And the mind needs data. It needs information to foresee a future and to direct our will and to build things up in our lives. And, and the data it uses, the raw pieces, our ideas, information, images of what seems good and true and beautiful. And to worship in truth then, folks, is to come and to say, Lord, I've seen all kinds of things and I've heard and I've experienced all kinds of things and I have a perceived way of living that I think is true. It will lead to the good life. It will bring joy and happiness and it's to say, Lord, would you wash over my mind and replace lies with truths. Build something out of my life that can endure. The Christian life, folks, is continual worship and coming to the Lord and being renewed and restored in the truth. This is why Romans 12, 1 and 2 says this. In view of God's mercies, after you've been saved, that is, you've accepted Christ as your Savior, you've received the Spirit, be transformed by what? Going to church. Be transformed by singing, foot-tapping music. Be transformed by the renewing of your minds. This is your spiritual act of worship. If worship is bowing before God, I want you to picture now that to worship in spirit and truth is to bow the knee of your mind to the truths of God and let Him wash those over you and replace lies. Let me give you two applications we're going to get out of here. I think we should understand that there is what, maybe what we call private worship. Some people only have a category for public worship, that is the gathering of people. But there's private worship, there's individual worship. And in our individual lives, to worship in spirit and truth is to, I think, first and foremost, go to the Word of God and say, Lord, would you by the Spirit of God, take the Word of God and wield it in my life. 
We need to read and hear and meditate on the Word of God. We need to do this in a very mindful way. We're not just trying to check off a box. Hey, I read three chapters today. How many did you read? We're not checking boxes. We're not in a race with someone else. We're not comparing. We're not doing someone else's deal. We are worshiping by going to the Word of God and letting it transform us. I cannot tell you how many times because, and I'm pretty faithful with this, because I just daily, as a matter of first importance and first thing, come to the Word of God. I'm not saying that that's when you should do it, the first thing. I think that's a good pro, uh, process, a good way to do it. But I come because I'm disciplined to do that. And God intersects my life. I mean, almost daily with a truth I need to hear to replace a lie that I've begun to believe. And some of this is small stuff, but it's helpful stuff. And I'll tell you, there's other times when it is profound. When it is, I'm talking about, I'm in a life-crumbling type situation where I could make a devastating move that would impact tons of people, other people, for the rest of their lives. And I come to the Word of God believing a lie, and it breaks me as God exposes the truth, and I know what I must do. I must let go of the lie and I must embrace the truth. Folks, that is private worship in the renewing of your mind. When you come and say, oh, God, I wanted to do this. He says, no, this is my way. Private worship. So then we could take that and we could say publicly when we worship. When we come together, again, trying to just kind of get practical, get real, get to helping us think about what we do when we publicly worship. I would say it's the same type thing that we need to focus on the truth of God's word. So, that's why I am torturing you people for 40 minutes. I'm going, we're, we're not talking about just knocking the dust off. We're talking about hearts and minds and lives that need to be renovated completely. Painful things have to be dealt with. Hard truths must be said. You know, one of the things about some guy getting up here and getting to pick what's preached, you know, I'll tell you, sometimes in our private devotion, we're just kind of flipping through the Bible. Whoop, don't like that chapter. Yeah, yeah, don't lie, you've got those chapters, don't you? I'm not going to pick on the one that's coming to mind, but there are multiple. Whoop, don't like that one. Lord, you have no choice if you show up here. And I can't tell you how many times I've showed up at church when I was not the, the preacher or the one speaking. And someone got up and read and preached about the Word of God and it just absolutely pierced my heart and exposed some things and changed some things. I said, all right, Lord, I, I hear you. The songs that we sing, the, I think the primary rubric by which we should evaluate our singing and the corporate singing is not the instruments that are used, not any number of things that we focus on. First and foremost, it should be about what truth is being conveyed. Is this a biblical truth? So there's a little bit of doctrinal evaluation. But also I do think, what does this say? How does this intersect people's lives and hearts? Is this just a totally empty fluffy song that means nothing 
You know, or is this a, a song that's full of a bunch of great stuff, but I don't know what any of those words mean? You know, we should be thinking about all the different elements when we come for corporate worship, but especially that, listen, folks, people are being inundated. Every one of you, and myself included, we are inundated all week long with information. We hear things, we see things, we feel things. In the spiritual realm, the enemy comes and speaks lies to our hearts, taps on our shoulder, and we need, when we come together, to be transformed by the truth. So public worship is, I mean, we should be largely thinking about what are the truths being told? How are they being said? Because people need to hear the life-transforming truths because we live out in a world that is full of lies, believing lies, propagating lies, telling you that this is the road of happiness, this is what will fulfill you, and it is absolute baloney. So we need the Word of God to come and to change us. And I'll tell you this, folks. Truth is found in Jesus. This woman says, hey, you know, I, I don't know about you. You're a Jewish guy. I don't know if I really care what you say. But when the Messiah comes, when the Christ, when the Savior that God has promised, he, when he comes, he'll tell us everything we need to know. And Jesus says what? I'm him. Jesus is the embodiment of truth from heaven come down. And if you want to know the truth, you look to Jesus. Jesus is the truth. Hey, listen. I love that Jesus comes to this Samaritan woman. And the disciples are shocked. Like, why are you talking to this lady? I can't believe he's talking to this lady. Hmm. No one, regardless of your past, regardless of your ancestry, your past failures, sins, mistakes, no matter what someone else has told you about you being worthless and unlovable, Jesus comes to that Samaritan woman and says, I want to restore you. You are not without hope. The Samaritan woman was the exact kind of person Jesus came to seek and to save People who are ruined and lost. People who have been captive to the lies of the devil. No one in this place is without hope. Jesus wants to restore you. And first of all, to come to him to bow the knee is to receive him as your savior, to say, you're right, I need what you have. And I need this life-changing encounter with the Holy Spirit, which is not just a one-time event, but it is an initial event. But it becomes a thing that continually gives me what I need and satisfies my thirst. You need to have that. Worship in spirit, and then we worship in truth. I guarantee you, I'll tell you, this has been a very painful week for me. And for various reasons, but one is because the Lord has been exposing in my heart lies and malformation, things that are still broken in my life. And it's hurt. It hurts. Some of it has hurt worse than being hit by a two-by-four when I'm tearing down an old greenhouse. Much worse. But he's not picking at it to hurt me. But he is coming to it and saying, this has got to be torn down because it's hurting you. And I need to rebuild and restore. And the right answer to that, to worship in truth is to say, 
All right, Lord, I hear you. Do it. Do it. Would you bow with me? Father, today we think about this passage that says you desire worshipers. Not just from Jews, not just from Baptists, not just from Pentecostals, not just from any group. You desire worshipers who are just people, who are broken. Help us to recognize that we indeed are broken. And we bow before you and say, help us. Give us life. Quench our thirst. Restore us, renew us, rebuild us from the inside out. Fix our relationships. Fix our wrong thinking. Fix our self-loathing. Or take those things from us. Restore us. Lord, let the truth wash over us, each one. Right now, Lord, I'm asking, by your Spirit, that you would expose in every person in this room's life an area or areas that just need to be yielded to you right now. Just, just, Lord, we pray that you'd do that. Show it. Expose it, just like you did for this woman. And then help us to be assured that you're not out to hurt us, but to help us. And restore. Help us to know how much we are loved by Jesus. By our Heavenly Father, who is not an abuser, not a hater, but a kind and gentle Lord, help us to walk out of this place differently. And day by day, to learn to do that over and over, to yield to you our hurt places and our devastation. Help us to learn what it means to be a worshiper who worships in spirit and in truth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed.